right, I'm going to read from the book of Ecclesiastes. How many of you have read from the book of Ecclesiastes before? You're better than me. These are the words of the teacher, a son of David, king in Jerusalem. The teacher says, meaningless, meaningless, completely meaningless, everything is meaningless. What do people really gain from all the hard work they do here on earth? People live and people die, but the earth continues forever. The sun rises, the sun sets, and then it hurries back to where it rises again. The wind blows to the south, it blows to the north, it blows from one direction and then another, and then it turns around and repeats the same pattern, going nowhere. All the rivers flow to the sea, but the sea never becomes full. Everything is boring so boring that you don't even want to talk about it. Words come again and again to our ears, but we never hear enough, nor can we ever really see all we want to see. All things continue the way they have been since the beginning. What has happened will always happen and will happen again. There is nothing new here on earth. Someone might say, look, this is new, but really, it's always been there. It was here before we were. People don't remember what happened long ago. And in the future, people will not remember what happens now. And even later, other people will not remember what was done before them. And then the writer continues, but I, I'm going to go ahead and paraphrase it to make it like sort of fit our times. So then I decided to become the smartest person alive. I went to Harvard and became a Rhodes Scholar. I was offered a CEO position at the strongest firm in the Silicon Valley and created the greatest fund in all of New York City. All it did was make me see the worst in humanity. I recognize that being smart means that, that, means that one is super perceptive at, and being super perceptive means that you can see nothing but the worst in people. It doesn't matter how smart I am. The person with wisdom gains sorrow. The person with knowledge lives unhappily. Being the smartest person alive is like chasing the wind. But the writer keeps looking for something. And so I tried to have a lot of fun. I went to every major event in the city. I stayed out at clubs till 6 a.m. and bought bottles of champagne for me and all my friends at a greatly marked up price. I bought a house in the Hamptons for the, for the summer and threw the biggest parties. And then, and then I decided I was going to build and design the best, one of the best structures the world has ever seen. I mean, this would make Frank Lloyd Wright look like a kid building models. I hired the best people, built my own place in the West Village. Imagine that, I built my own standalone home in the West Village, and I hired a bunch of chefs, a sommelier, cleaners, gardeners, and then bought a helicopter and built a helipad on top of my house in the West Village. I became a sensation, and everyone wanted to know what I was doing and who I was wearing, and TMZ did their best to follow me around, and there were websites dedicated to me, and I was even asked to host the Grammys, which I passed on because they're just the Grammys. And one day, as I took off over the skyline to head out to my Hamptons home so that I could party and buy myself the best self-driving Tesla on the market, I said to myself, this is all freaking pointless. It's worthless. And so then I went back to trying to be smart. And you know what I found out? Even the people that I consider absolute idiots will get further in life. Even people who lie and say asinine things and walk in the middle of Atlantic Avenue looking at their phones and trust Breitbart as their reputable news source will, will, will live while I get old and die. Wisdom is useless. It's all useless. What do people get for all their work and struggling here on earth? All their lives, their work is full of pain and sorrow, and even at night their minds don't rest. This is also meaningless. We are going to live... 
and we will be touched by a steady stream of pain and suffering. You will feel directionless, purposeless, and lost for entire seasons of, at a time in your life. Most likely, it'll start in middle school where you'll have a terrible time in an awkward stage. You will experience lost defeat, broken trust over and over again. Everything you think is solid will one day all of a sudden be pulled out from under your feet and you will fall into a deep, dark chasm of confusion. You will often go to bed at night angry at yourself, angry at your spouse, angry at your kids, and angry at God. You will constantly be disappointed with yourself and your inability to accomplish the deepest desires of your heart. You will set yourself up for great goals and you will constantly fall short. You will make it to the MBA. You, you will try to make it to the MBA, but you will only end up playing basketball at community college and teaching gym class until you retire. You will hate the way that your body looks as you age, and it will take you twice the amount of maintenance to shape it into something you can even remotely tolerate. And then you will crave milkshakes and chicken wings daily and hourly. But instead, you're going to eat vegetables in quiet, resentful, dietary lust. You'll loathe your very essence many times over, and most of the time when you look in the mirror, you're going to see that essence, your very soul staring back at you in disdain. If you are fortunate, this will run on a loop for 60, 70, maybe even 80 years, and then you'll finally reach a point where you're unable to even bathe or wipe yourself, and you will watch Matlock. You will begin eating your meals through a straw, sort of like having a milkshake, but not really, and then not long after that, you will die. And people will come to your funeral and they will eat supermarket-style potato salad. And they will talk and someone will lament the fact that they can't watch the Mets game because they're watching your dead body instead. And don't forget that Jesus loves you. Amen. <sighs> Welcome to Lent. <laughs> Welcome to Lent. Now you might be saying to yourself, hey, haven't we been in Lent for, since like November 8th? And I would say yes. But really, that was Epiphany. And Epiphany is a time where we're supposed to celebrate the light and the hope. That's uh, the time we're supposed to really dig into some of this stuff that feels meaningless and difficult and painful and hard. Um, but here's the deal. We've had like enough Lent. And so what I want to do are two things. I want to acknowledge the fact that life can be difficult and painful and meaningless and hard. But I also want to acknowledge the fact that there is great hope in life, that there is goodness in life, that there are good things that can and will happen for us in our life. And we're going to do this by reading the book of Ecclesiastes. Who's, who's gone through the whole book of Ecclesiastes? All right, a couple, a few less of you. Most of the time, people really avoid this book. Most of the time, people do their best to avoid it. I have done my best to avoid it. I know a little bit of it. But in studying this book, you know, it starts off, it's all meaningless. And then by the end of the book, you're like, oh, wait, there's great hope here. That's what I hope to bring to every one of us here today, that hope. Um, Ecclesiastes, it's wisdom literature. Have, have you ever heard of wisdom literature before? Okay, wisdom literature, so Proverbs would be considered wisdom literature. Wisdom literature always gets written uh, in prose or in song or in poetry. Okay, uh, remember back in those days, we know this, they didn't have computers, they didn't have typewriters, they didn't have writing utensils, so it was story. Everything was told through story. So they told Ecclesiastes as story and poetry so that it would be remembered. For some reason, they wanted us to remember the terribleness that I just read, like the difficulty of it all, that's wisdom poetry. Now, wisdom poetry also has two things. It usually has um, something uh, that says the wise do this and the foolish do this. Have you guys ever heard that before? Especially maybe in Proverbs. The wise do this and they're great and the foolish do this and they're bad, right? Have we, have, do, do we know what I'm talking about? Do you remember the direct TV commercials with like Rob Bell and then Meathead Rob Bell? Remember those? 
yeah, some of you, and you're like, be like regular Rob Bell. Don't be like meathead Rob Bell. That's sort of wisdom literature, okay? That's what it is. So, um, so wisdom literature always has a, the wise do this, the foolish do this. There's a duality about wisdom literature. Now, what makes Ecclesiastes so great is that the writer of Ecclesiastes wants to disrupt us completely from the idea that wisdom literature is either wise or foolish. That's what the writer wants to do. They're saying, you know what? There is a life that is not lived in the black and the white. There is a life that is lived in the gray. Okay, and if you hang out at this church enough, you sort of know that we like life lived in the gray. So this writer is going, Ecclesiastes is for the people who do everything right. You've done all the right stuff. You followed all the right rules. You talked to all the right people. You made sure that you read all the right books. You went to the right colleges. You got the right job. And you still got screwed. That's who Ecclesiastes is for. Anybody can relate to that? A few of us? Yeah, I can relate to it. Ecclesiastes says, you know what? You tried your best, but meathead Rob Lowe still wins. That's what Ecclesiastes says. Ecclesiastes says, you might do your best to bring love, to bring patience, to bring kindness. You might do your best to end things like slavery and racism, but they're still there and they're stronger than ever. That's what Ecclesiastes says. That's what Ecclesiastes does. That's why Ecclesiastes starts out and says, it's all meaningless. The entire thing is meaningless. And I think we've been to those places before. You ever been to a place, like you have a friend who they're incredibly um, fit and they eat well and they don't party nearly as hard as you do and then they end up getting cancer and you're like, why? Why did that happen? That's Ecclesiastes. Like you, you applied for a job and there is no reason you should not have this job except you found out later on that someone profiled you, uh, you know, gender profile or ethnic, uh, ethnically profiled or something else, right? And now that's why you didn't get the job. There's nothing you could do about that. It just hurts. You physically can no longer do something that you love doing. You're passionate about something and you can't do it anymore. Your, your body won't let you. This is Ecclesiastes. You are a model tenant and you pay your rent a day early every month. And yet, you still get kicked out. You still get kicked out of your apartment because the landlord wants to make way more money than you can afford. That is Ecclesiastes. It's all meaningless. It's all meaningless. Where's the hope in this? I said I was going to talk about hope. There is hope in, this, in Ecclesiastes. There is hope uh, in, in what the writer is writing. Now, we've done a terrible, terrible job, awful job, in fact, at translating Ecclesiastes, Okay. It's not all meaningless. When we look at the word meaningless, the, me the word meaningless in the Hebrew language is havel. And what does havel mean? Havel means vapor, okay? Raise your hand if you ever, on a hot day, have ever taken a um, squirt bottle and like squirt some mist and like it gets like on you. No, nobody. Or like the fans that have the mist and it comes on you and you're like, thank God, like, right? This is what the writer's talking about. The writer's talking about literal vapor, Okay, now vapor on a hot day is wonderful, right? You spray it or it comes through the fan and you're like, ah, but what do we know about vapor? It's fleeting. It's a few seconds of feeling really, really good or relieved or taken care of and then it's gone. So what the writer is saying, he's not saying it's all meaningless. He's saying, no, in fact, all this stuff is very meaningful. It just happens to be fleeting. It just happens to be limited. That's what the writer is saying. The writer's saying it's Havel, it's all vapor. The good stuff that we have, it's all fleeting, it's all limited. The bad stuff we have, all fleeting, all limited. Okay, so, so he's saying, basically, he's, he's 
pointing us to the reality that says at the end of the day, we all end up in the same place. Whether you have the standalone house in the West Village in a helipad, or whether you are you know, mentally ill, homeless on the street and have lived a miserable life, we all end the same way. We're limited. Our time here is limited. We are all going to die. It's a little bit different than meaningless. Meaningless says none of it matters. This writer says that all of it matters. It just isn't going to go on forever. Still. All of it matters, but it's not going to go on forever. I was reading this book by a guy named Rob Bell, and Rob Bell says, when we read this and we find out about vapor, and we find out the fact that we can't choose our ending, at some point we are all going to end, Rob Bell says what we do is we go and start trying to do vapor management. Vapor management, that's what we try to do. What's vapor management? Well, vapor management means we grasp onto, sub, onto something and we say this is what happens and this is who we are for all of time. So a lot of us, when we do want to do vapor management, we look to the past. That's one thing we do. Uh, here's a little something maybe some of you didn't know about me. When I was 20, I got arrested and I got kicked out of college when I was 20 years old. Um, and I'm smiling about it now because I'm up here talking to you guys. But anyway... Yeah, uh, so I got, I got arrested, I got kicked out of college, I got expelled, and um, for a while, for a while, that's how I defined myself. For a while, I was the kid that made the big mistake. For a while, I was the person who had like the scarlet letter of like shame, like I shamed my family, or I didn't do things the right way, the way I was supposed to. And I would say that went on for a few years. And the way I managed vapor was not to say, oh, that transgression is fleeting. No, it was this transgression now defines me. It defines who it is. This is who I am, and this is who I'll always be. My guess is that there are people in this room right now who maybe didn't get kicked out of college or get arrested like I did. But something's happened in your life. Something tragic happened in the past. Something difficult has happened. There was a bad breakup. There was abuse, which is terrible. And, and what we do when we do vapor management is we say, this thing, this thing that I have that's painful, it now defines who I am. It's not vapor. It's me, and I hold on to it. That's vapor management. And if we do that, if we hang on to that pain, that feeling of loss, that feeling of brokenness, and let it define us, then we're missing out on what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying. He's saying that's meaningful stuff. Our pain is meaningful stuff. My arrest and getting expelled, that was meaningful stuff. It mattered. But it's fleeting. It's vapor. And yet we still try to hold on to it. How many people saw Napoleon Dynamite? Remember Uncle Rico throwing footballs? Vapor management, that's what it is. He's living in the past when he was a football player and that's all he loved doing was playing football and then he sets up the camera and all he does is throw footballs all day. Vapor management, being defined by something great in your past. You ever wonder why child actors have such a hard time as adults? Because they have been defined as something in their past. Right? And they hold on to that thing. It is not fleeting for them. It continues. Vapor management. New York City is great with vapor management. You want to know why? Because New York City tells us that we always have to look to the future. Right? We haven't ever arrived. We can't start living until we get married or have kids. We can't start living until we buy that $2.2 million brownstone. We can't start living until we sign the record deal. We can't start living until we've played Bowery Ballroom or Madison Square Garden or have had a piece of artwork sold. We can't start living until we found the job that is the end of all jobs. And so what New York says, is it says don't live in the now. The, the real fullness, the real good stuff that's going to happen, the lasting stuff that's going to happen will happen in the future. And so we stop what's happening right now, we stop what's happening right now, and we look through for fullness in the future. We say, I'm going to be defined by what happens in my future. That's what I'm going to do. That is also vapor management. It's not going to end. I just haven't got there yet. 
Christians, we are great at vapor management. We're some of the best, in fact, because what do we have? Do we die? We die, but where do we go? Heaven. We go to heaven. Vapor management. <laughs> Heaven's real, okay? I, li I like heaven, and I'm hoping that one day we're all in heaven together. Um, but a lot of the times, what Christians will do, and a lot of us Christians will do this, will say, what happens here, what happens now, doesn't really matter because we are uh, not limited. We, we will end, but not, we won't really end because we're going to heaven. And so what we want to do is we want to take everybody to heaven with us. So we're going to start evangelizing and scaring people and telling them that if you don't do this, meaningless. It's all, it's all vapor. You are going to die. It will end unless you go to heaven. And then you can have vapor management then you're going to be okay. And so I like the idea of heaven. I like eternal life. What I don't like is that we forsake what's happening in the here and the now for what's happening in the future. Vapor management means that we get rid of the idea that it is fleeting, that it is missed, that it is limited. We get rid of that idea and we hold on to past. We hold on to present. We hold on to eternity instead of holding on to what's here right now. Jesus shows up in Mark chapter 1, 15, and he says, I'm here. The kingdom of heaven is near. And what he's saying is he's not saying like, oh, it's near like in a, a, a few thousand years. He's saying, no, like if you step close to me, you'll be near me. I'm the kingdom of heaven and I'm here right now. And he goes, repent. And what's Jesus saying? He's not going, hey, remember Israel when in your past you wanted to be a strong, mighty nation and you wanted to take over Assyria and the Babylonians? I'm here to help you live out that past. No, he's not saying that. He goes, oh, remember how you want to be uh, out from under the thumb of the Roman Empire and you want to be an independent, uh, amazing state and you want a, a leader that's going to be incredible? No, I'm not here for that future either. I'm here now. And the kingdom of heaven is here right now. And so if the author of Ecclesiastes is telling us we don't get to choose how it will end, what Jesus is saying, he's saying it's true. We don't get to choose how it will end, but we do get to choose how we will live. We don't get to choose how it's going to end, but we do get to choose how we will live. Now, will you live with vapor management or will you live right now? And he says, I'm here, I'm right now, repent. Now, if you were here last week, Chris Travis said repentance is metanoia, which means change your mind. Change your mind about being stuck to your past. Change your mind about saying life doesn't start till you have your future. Change your mind about looking only to heaven the kingdom of heaven is here right now. We get to start here today. We do not get to choose how our lives will end, but we do get to choose how they're lived today. Now, how does this play out in the real world? How does this play out? Um, full honesty, I struggled finding like a good illustration for this, so I hope this works out. <laughs> but I'm gonna give it my best. This is the best way I can explain it. So when my daughter was two, we dressed her up as a skunk and she hated it. She started crying and she cried really, really hard. <laughs> yeah, she, she couldn't stand it. And we handed her a bag and she cried even harder. And then we brought her outside and she cried the hardest. And you know why she cried the hardest? Because she probably thought like we were parading her around in a skunk costume in front of all these people. And she was wailing. And she walked up to this woman who reached into a bowl and dropped something in her bag. And she was just wailing. And then she was going, ah, and she looks in her bag and she goes, she pulls out a Kit Kat. And it changed everything. And then she was like, 
smiles. Then she was like, I know why I've dressed up like a skunk. I'm dressed up like a skunk because I'm going to get candy. And so she started running to the next houses, to everybody's houses, and, and bringing home candy. And it was uh, the most, if not like one of the most memorable, memorable days I've ever had with my children, ever. I, I look back on that day fondly. And there's this, there's this old adage, right? The old adage is this, um, your kids grow up quickly. They'll say that, oh, it goes by so fast, or whatever. Um, and I think about this in terms of vapor and vapor management. And I've heard people say, well, that's all meaningless. Well, if we're, if we're only worried about today, well, if that's what God wants to see us do, if the, the kingdom of heaven is here today, well, that's meaningless. No, my daughter learned about Halloween that day. And that year, when she was two, she was potty trained, which was awesome. And she learned how to have conversations with people. And she went to this little school for two days a week, for two hours a day. It was really, really cool. And so what happened then was great, okay? But I don't live there either. I don't live in that spot. So it's not meaningless, but I'm not living in that past either. My daughter's not defined by who she was when she was two. My daughter's now seven. And what happened back then shaped my daughter. It allowed my daughter to be who she's become. So the past has shaped her, but it's fleeting, it's gone. The future will shape her. It's not there yet. But while, it's, uh, while, it's, while we're still waiting, I have my seven-year-old here right now. And that is what Jesus is talking about when he says the kingdom of heaven is near. He says, take the things that have shaped you from your past, and yeah, you will be shaped by what you want from your future, and take it and use it and live with it right here in this place. You do not get to choose how it's gonna end, but you do get to take all of your, uh, all of your worries, all of your strengths, all the happenings, all the bad things, all the good things, you, get, you do get to use it to shape it for the here and now. My daughter's not defined by being a skunk. My daughter won't be defined by the college she goes to. My daughter has used this and her ambitions here to the point where we enjoy her right here, right now, and love her for who she is right here and right now. That is what the writer of Ecclesiastes is talking about. You do not get to choose how this thing all ends, but you do get to choose how you live it out today. So Jesus says, you know, the kingdom of heaven is here. And what he's saying, he's saying, you don't get to choose how this ends, but you do get to bring love today. And you do get to live selflessly today. And you do get to walk with the least of these today. You do get to help the refugees and the poor today. You get to love and drink and eat and be a glutton today with your friends. You get to celebrate today. Repent of anything else. Repent of anything else. And so in this Lent season... We're going to die. We don't get to choose how it ends. We don't get that choice. We do get to choose how to live today. If you're defined by your past, repent. Change your mind about what it means to be defined by your past. The brokenness and the mourning and the hurt. Yeah, I saw, you know, that brokenness and mourning and hurt, I had to go through a lot after I was arrested and everything got messed up. But, but you know what? It doesn't define me anymore. It shaped who I am so I could be who I am today. The stuff I want for the future, yeah, I could get so caught up in what I want for the future that I forget about everything happening right here, right now. And the stuff I want in the future is good, but I can bring it with me and let it shape who I am today. We don't get to choose how it's going to end, but we do get to choose how we'll live today. We have our Lent tree. See our Lent tree over there? Everybody has a, a tag on your seat. Do you see the tag that you have on your seat? Pick up that tag. 
If you were at, uh, here for Lent last year, um, then you know that our Lent tree was a tree where we had uh, all of our fears, the things we were afraid of, our anxieties, uh, some of the things we were uncertain about. And this year, I want to do something different for our Lent tree. Our Lent tree is going to bring us hope. So here's what I want you to write on your tag. And when you go up to take communion, here's what I want you to put on the Lent tree. I want you to write the one way that you're going to start living in the here, in the now, in the present, fully. What's one way you're, you're going to stop being uh, you know, held on to by the past? Or what's the one way you're going to stop being freaked out by the future? How are you going to live today? Because the truth of the matter is the kingdom of heaven is here. We do not get to choose how it ends but we do get a chance to choose how we will live. I invite each of us to live fully in Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom of heaven. Amen?